following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. I want to jump right into some brief comments today about the God First Life. It is week four. Yesterday was the last day of our 21-day God First fast, and it's been a truly enriching time for me spiritually. I know it has been for our entire church. It's been a joy for me to watch you grow, to see you show up in, 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 in strong numbers at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings and pray, to see you come on Sunday night to our worship and intercession night by the hundreds and to watch what God did as you believed for the miraculous was so encouraging. Reuben told me, our IT team informed me uh, this morning that during the course of the 21 days, we sent over 10,000 daily, or right at 10,000 daily devotionals as people took this journey with us in the God First Life Fast. But I have to admit on the heels of all of that, something that is very unspiritual but very special happened to me this morning. I had a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios at 4.45 a.m., and it was amazing, <laughs> amazing. For those of you that are, aren't, aren't, haven't been around here a while, I just have this infatuation. I love Honey Nut Cheerios, and, and so 21 days without Honey Nut Cheerios, that's a long time, and so at 4.45 this morning, Honey Nut Cheerios changed my life. It is completely unspiritual, but it was very special to me. As I've reminded you each week, we're framing our conversation around the four thoughts from Stovall Weems' book entitled The God First Life. As I have over the last few weeks, I will today interweave much of Stovall's insight from the book with some of my own thoughts and ideas in an attempt to give you as your pastor some very practical biblical insight on how to structure your life around God's priorities how to structure your life and align your life around God's ways, to align your life to His kingdom order. The entire series of messages has been anchored in the statement of Jesus in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. We are learning from these four main ideas taken from that passage He says, seek first. That means you're going to get a new priority when you come to him. He says, seek first his kingdom, which is a reference to the new family that you're going to get when you come to him. He says, seek his righteousness, which is a reference to the new life that you're going to have when you come to him. And then he said, all these other things will be added to you, which is a reference to the new freedom that you're going to have when you come to him. I fully intended to talk to you today about the new freedom because that's kind of where we are in the series. I talked about seeking his righteousness last week and what it looks like uh, to live the new life of Christ and to seek God's righteousness today. I was going to talk to you about new freedom and towards the end of the week, God really began to deal with me about not being finished describing what it means to seek his righteousness, not being finished with talking about what it looks like to walk in your new life in Christ. So I want you to go with me to Matthew 20. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And in the same conversation in reference to himself, verse 28, For even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
As I look around, I get the sense that while more and more of the culture wallows in the mire of mediocrity, half-heartedness, and the status quo, deep down, our hearts really do long for greatness. There's something on the inside of us that longs for more than the average normal life that we're living. The highest grossing movies over the last several years have central figures that possess superhuman power. We're possessing to go watch what we long for internally. The highest grossing video games are those that allow the gamer to become a superhuman or hero type character whose power, strength, and intelligence is anything but average or status quo. Why do we purchase those things? Because they are meeting a need. While most of us live average lives, internally, we long for greatness. We want to be great. We want to do great. Even those of us who are Christ followers are longing for that in our walk with God. I mean, a few years ago, John Bevere wrote a book entitled Extraordinary. Uh, Sometime later, I wrote a book entitled Extravagant. Two words from different angles, two books from different angles that try to challenge believers beyond their mediocrity to pursue the life that God has for us. It's a life of greatness, not a life of status quo or average. Because we serve an extraordinary average uh, or extraordinary extravagant and great God. And if we're going to bear his name, then we need to bear his nature. But in our search for greatness, my fear is that we follow the culture's path to greatness instead of the one that Jesus laid out for us. Because Jesus turned the idea of greatness up on its head. It's just like the conversation that we had a few weeks ago about happiness. Jesus never rebuked our search for happiness. He just redefined how to get it. The same is true about greatness. Jesus doesn't rebuke that internal desire on the inside of us for greatness. He simply redefines what greatness is. Wanting to be great isn't bad. We are destined for greatness because we serve a great God. God just wants us to know what true greatness is. In the beginning of my ministry, I'm a teenage kid, I get called into ministry. The first thing I want to do is let my pastor know. And so I go in to visit with my pastor. I've already preached a couple times at school and some events that I've created. So I want my pastor to know uh, maybe that there's some opportunities he could help me with. And so I go sit down with my much older pastor, explaining to him that God has called me. And I lay out the vision of how I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. And I'm going to change the world. And I'm going to touch the nations. And I'm passionately telling him about all the promises that God has made to me and all the things that are going to happen in my life and my ministry and he is genuinely excited I mean he says that is phenomenal Brian I have no doubts in my mind and 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 because I see that I'm glad you recognize that I want to create a place and a position for you and in my mind I'm thinking yes I mean I'm just I'm, I'm 17 just turned 17 and he knows it he sees it he affirms it I mean he's probably about to give me every third Sunday and allow me to teach on Wednesday nights and and uh and then instead he says and he goes over to a counter and he pulls out he said the file is a deacon and he pulls out a file and he said, we really don't have a place for somebody your age to serve in, in a leadership capacity. I mean, obviously to be a deacon, there needs to be some wisdom and maturity. He said, however, uh, I'm going to create a spot for you and make you a junior deacon. The word deacon really means in the Greek servant. And that's what deacons in the New Testament did. They served widows and waited tables. And he said, that's where ministry starts. And he said, so here's the keys to the church. With this new calling on your life and all the great things God's going to do in your life, uh, you, you need to learn how to open the building up. You need to learn how to close it down. 
And then while you're waiting on the closing it down after everybody leaves because they stay around and talk, you can empty the trash, you can clean the bathrooms, and you can do all that. And I, and I was like, um, this really wasn't what I had in mind, but I'm, 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 I'm grateful for the opportunity as I held the keys in my hand. It was a lot of responsibility to put in the hand of a 17-year-old kid to make sure it's all locked up and the alarm was set and everything. That, that was a, a big responsibility. I, I was grateful that he trusted me, but, but then I said, but... Well, what about the preaching? You know, I mean, how's that going to get me to, uh, you know, how's that going to get me to, uh, a pla- you know, the War Memorial Stadium where Billy Graham's preaching to 50,000 people? How, how does that correlate? Um, I got to learn how to preach somewhere. And he said, well, we'll work on that. Uh, it's a heart issue first, and the gift follows the heart. So it, it, it'll all happen. He said, but, but I will keep my eye open. I have a relationship in the area, and opportunities arise, I'll, you know, and, and here and in those opportunities. And a few weeks later, he called me and he said, I, I have an opportunity. I want you to go preach. The pastor had a root canal, had some side effects that. He's out. He needs somebody to fill in. And, and it was at Feltner Assembly. He began to describe it, and I realized I must have drawn the short straw. Uh, Feltner Assembly was down, eight miles down a gravel road, potholes. It was called Million Dollar Road. The reason it's called Million Dollar Road is it did a million dollars worth of damage to your car before you got where you were going to get to this. I mean, it was an old building, barely standing. They had done some work to it and wound up bricking it on the outside and improving it over the years. It's a much nicer building now, and the road's not as bad as it used to be. But then, everything was pretty rough, and there was a handful of people that were there to hear me preach. It was a far cry from Billy Graham, but hey, I'm getting started. And, 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 and then he calls me a few weeks later and says, hey, there's an opportunity that opened up for you in Egypt. And I said, like, Cairo, Egypt? He said, no, Egypt, Arkansas. It's right outside of, it's right outside of Jonesboro. I mean, there really is in Egypt, Arkansas. And so I'm still living at home. I told my mom, hey, I'm going to preach in two weeks in Egypt, Arkansas. I got to fill in for a pastor. And my, Haley and I were dating at the time. And so she'd come to visit. So Haley, my mom and I walked in. Um, there were, when the three of us walked in, the church attendance went up 30%. All right. That's, 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 that's how many folks were there in this old building. I met a lady there that I learned soon was woven into the fabric of the church. Her name was Mary. Mary met us at the door. The only way I know to describe Mary is simple-minded. And Mary met us at the door, and she stuck her hand out. She said, hi, I'm Mary. Do you get commodities? And I looked over at my mom, and I'm asking, do we get commodities? She said, no. And she whispered, we qualify, but we don't get them. And so uh, that was, I'm walking up to the door going, commodities. I, I, I'm fixing to preach, and I'm dealing with these, you know. And I, I, I go up there, and I, I sit on the front row, and they, the volunteer song leader starts leading the singing out of, a red back book and taking song selections out of a green back and a red back hymnal and people are calling out numbers and that's the song they sing. And, and, and Mary keeps singing, sing 255, we shall see the king. Sing 255, we shall see the king. And they just ignore her and they keep on singing until finally in hopes to get her to be quiet, they sing, we shall see the king. Then they move on to I'll fly away and as soon as it ends, she says, sing 255, we shall see the king. And so they just keep on ignoring it. Well, I get up to preach, and I'm in the middle of my second point trying to preach, and Mary yells out, Preacher, sing 255. We shall see the king. All right. I'm quickly approaching Billy Graham status at the rate that I am I'm moving. Sunday night, I preach back in Egypt. I'm, I'm, I'm back there at Egypt again, and... and uh, uh, Mary gets up from service. She's actually really quiet that night. She's reserved, and, and she goes to the back, and, and, and the back doors are open. So it's one of kind of the, there's no foyer hardly. You open the back door. There are two bathrooms and a water fountain, men's, women, water fountain, and you walk two more steps, and you're at the back row. 
and, and the back doors were open so you could see the exterior doors, Mary got up and she was literally tiptoeing from the women's bathroom to the men's bathroom, stealing toilet paper. And she was stuffing the toilet paper in her blouse. Nobody could see this but me. I'm preaching. Everybody's looking at me. And I watch her. She's got a strand of toilet paper. And she's stuffing it in her blouse. And then she looks at me. And then she goes to the women's bathroom. She knows I can't do anything about it. I mean, what am I going to do? Stop and and say, stealing toilet paper. I mean, what am I going to do? She goes to the women's bathroom, she stuffs it in her blouse, and then she makes her way all the way back to the front row, and she's dragging toilet paper out of the dress as she makes her way to the front. It was uh, not the start I had envisioned when I went to visit with my pastor. Looking back... I'm so grateful my pastor and the Lord led me down Million Dollar Road and I went multiple times and led me to Egypt and I know Mary, uh, I met her multiple times and her whole family. It challenged my spirit of entitlement. Cleaning and locking up the church and going to all of those backwoods places taught me a lot about God, about people, about myself. In Philippians, Paul's description of Jesus' journey toward greatness is, is like this. His journey to define what greatness is, this is the moment that defines it. Philippians 2, 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted or elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. You need to look at that verse 7. Here the creator of the universe, the God who spoke the world into existence, empties himself, lays aside his divine privileges, and takes the humble position of a slave. He became a servant. By his life, he modeled the path to greatness. He became the greatest servant. And and, and what did the father do in response? He elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him a name that is above all names. As we continue to put God first in our life. As we continue to seek His righteousness, there are things about His nature and our journey within Him that we will never fully understand until we decide to lower ourselves and take on the identity of a servant. Serving others the way Jesus did goes beyond doing good deeds or giving time and giving money for God's kingdom. Those are vital. But serving others starts with a shift in the way that we see ourselves. Living the God-first life means laying down our privileges and entitlements that we've come to expect and begin to willingly see ourselves as servants first. Serving is not something we do. When serving is authentic, it happens out of the overflow of who we are. When serving is doing, it becomes a job description. It is done out of duty or obligation. Some people serve in order to relieve their guilt. That's why so many people burn out doing ministry. They burn out serving because serving is something they do. It's work. It drains them. And we only have so much emotional capacity. And when serving is doing, it is draining. 
But when we become a servant, when serving is not something on our to-do list because we think that's what Christians are supposed to do, when serving others genuinely becomes a part of our DNA, when it naturally flows from who we are, we serve out of the overflow of our relationship with Christ, and it is in that relationship that there is an endless capacity to be who we are, servants. Notice how Jesus identifies himself in that Matthew 20 passage. He identifies his purpose. He didn't identify himself as a teacher or a preacher or a healer or a leader. He was all of that and more. But when he chose to identify himself, he chose one word. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. Whatever you consider your primary identity, homemaker, business person, student, it's not your primary identity. You are a servant first who has been given the opportunity to lead a business, care for your home, or influence your classmates. It may be preaching in remote places, cleaning bathrooms, locking up the building. We are all called to serve. And when we're truly serving, we are investing part of ourselves in the task. We are setting aside our goals, our aims, our desire to invest our time, our talent, our money, our sweat, our heart, our strength for the sake of God's kingdom. In other words, we're taking on the character of Jesus Christ. When I walked into my pastor's office that day declaring that I was called to be a leader in the church, in my mind, I was a leader who would serve. But as I've grown to understand the gospel, matured, I understood the life and ministry of Jesus, that idea has flipped, and I realized the biblical concept is this, I am a servant who has been given the opportunity to lead. Stovall, in his book, gives a self-test, and I, it's a very practical test, and I, I'm going to read it right out of the book to you today because I believe it's a great evaluation for all of us. Number one, when someone assumes you will do the hard work, do you joyfully accept responsibility? Or do you do it grudgingly and resentfully? Servants expect to do the hard work. Number two, when you take up the extra slack, do you point it out to get the credit you deserve? Or are you satisfied by simply lifting the burden from another person's shoulders? Servants say, I have only done my duty. Number three, imagine working under someone who feels less qualified than you. Do you challenge their authority to highlight their deficiencies and prove your own qualifications? Or do you work to bring success to the whole team? The team is more important than the individual's role. Servants understand that the goal is more important than the role. Number four, do you trade services or skills, and I would even say money, only for greater power in any given situation, holding out unless you get your way? Or do you give freely and without expecting anything in return? Servants trade power for the privilege of seeing others succeed. If you're like me, when you hold your life up against that list, there is room for improvement. But don't let that discourage you. Even Jesus' disciples had a difficult time understanding and embracing the role of a servant. They wanted a place of power in the kingdom of God. They thought Jesus had come to set up a political kingdom. I mean, he was a Messiah. Surely he's going to come and overthrow Rome. He's going to set up an independent Jewish state. And because we got in on the ground floor, we're going to get a bigger slice of this kingdom. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. 
He came to start not a revolution against Rome, but a coup d'etat against the dominion of sin in the heart of humanity. So in John 13, Jesus has the most powerful lesson about leadership, authority, and power. And he preached the greatest illustrated message that has ever been preached. They were eating dinner. You and I call that meal the Last Supper. Jesus took off his robe, grabbed a towel, wrapped it around his waist, filled a water basin full of water, and he began to wash their feet. In Jesus' day, the outer base or the outer robe was a sign of a person's position in society. Jesus was a rabbi, a respected position. His robe would have given him rank in society, an honored position in Israel. But when Jesus took off his robe, he was laying aside his earthly symbol of rank and he was sending a message to his disciples, status does not define my disciples, servanthood does. And then he puts the servant's towel on in place of his robe, nails down and washes their feet. He was redefining greatness just like he redefined happiness. In God's kingdom, you climb down the corporate ladder to success by taking the identity of a servant above whatever role or position you have in life. In the kingdom, you stoop toward greatness. When Jesus laid aside his robe for the towel, the servant's towel, he was saying, the Christian life is not defined by titles, but by the servant's towel. But as I finish, one of the most spectacular statements in that entire John 13 account of the Last Supper is when John shows us some insight about what what Jesus knew as he was serving. He says in John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and returned to God. Jesus knew. I want you to get that. He knew the extent of his authority. He knew that he had authority over everything. He knew where he came from and where he was going. He had come from God. He was going back to God. In other words, he was secure. He wasn't having an identity crisis. He wasn't looking for a pat on the back. He didn't need affirmation. He is doing what he had always done, teaching them how to love each other. When you serve like Christ, it means serving from a place of strength, not a place of insecurity or a need for approval. When it comes to serving, your worth is never in question, only the condition of your heart. And so I ask you a question. Are you willing, are we, am I, willing to empty ourselves of everything we feel entitled to, to serve like Jesus? And the reason that is important today is because there is nothing you're going to ever do that will put you in the position that need to take on a servant's heart other than come into relationship with people in the church. You can walk into this church and hear sermons on Sunday and get talks and and, and have a great worship environment and connect with us and be a part of our family of faith at a very distant level and avoid any relationships because you want to avoid friction and get your little Christian shot in the arm every week. And that's all good, but I'm telling you, there's a whole lot more. And with the friction and trouble of relationship comes the reward and the benefit of growing up and maturing and discipling because discipleship does not happen outside of relationship. That's why we're committed to small groups. 
That's why there's been a lot of energy go into today. That's why people have invested in making things happen for you if you sign up today and next week because we believe if you get in that group and study the Word together, you go to that men's breakfast, you, you, you get in the connection with those ladies around the Word, or you go to that young adult study and you do that for seven or eight weeks and you start making relationships, it is as much about the relationships that you make as it is the stuff that you're studying. Life transformation happens in community. And that's where you're going to have to learn to be a servant. That's where everything entitling rises up and you have to decide, am I going to empty myself and become like Jesus? If you never walk in relationship, you never have to deal with that and you never grow. That's why relationships matter. I want to leave you with this story. We have a several, all of, a lot of our kids grow up out in this church and they go off and do great things, business, education, arts, media, ministry. A couple of our kids just graduated last year, went to serve in the inner city of New York with an urban inner city ministry there. They went together and they're serving together. I got word this week that when they went there, this probably was not like me going to my pastor. This was not in their mind. They're going to go change the world for Jesus, do something to touch the heart of New York. You know, uh, Nikki Cruz and the, uh, the whole story about Wilkerson and, and David Wilkerson all I mean you have those minds as a kid when you go to inner city New York and I don't know what they were thinking probably wasn't this but one of them was was told of a need of a lady who was not well kept and she um, she was about to lose her government housing because she was it was it was unclean and when the pastor of the inner city church made some of our kids that grew up here, they're serving there for the last six months, aware of that, they have a free day during the week. It wasn't required of them. It was a free day during the week. They chose to use their free day to try to teach that lady how to clean her home because she was going to be inspected on the 20th day they were coming back. And they got word of this with three days left, and this woman had done nothing. She was about to get kicked out of her home. So they go in and said, we will help you clean your home. I mean, you think it's somebody, this, is, this house is nasty. And it was somebody else's mess. It's a different race than them. And they begin to clean this house. And they, she said, why are you doing this? Because we want you to have a place to live. There's got to be a greater reason why you're doing this. Because we think these are the kinds of things Jesus does. And they served her. They were there with her when the inspector came. And she passed inspection. And you would have thought it was their grandma. And that they, 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 had, they, they won the Super Bowl. And they got out of there and they started calling home. She got to keep her house. I mean, I mean, it was the biggest thing for them. And I just sat and I thought, God, thank you for letting the culture of this church, the families of this church, raise young men like that that are willing to get their hands dirty with the risk it may be dirty next month too. You know? But, but there might be the possibility that some love was shown there in a tangible way that transforms that lady's life. That is a servant heart. They had no idea I'd talk about it today. That's not why they did it. They used their day off because they wanted to make a difference. They put aside the robe. They took up the towel. And they said, this is what it looks to descend into greatness. And that's it. And I hope it challenges you today I want you to leverage the opportunities you have. A few moments in the lobby, visit those tables. I want you to stand with me and let me speak a blessing over your life today. Please pray for us.
about the time you start eating guacamole tonight, we'll begin eating curry, okay? I kind of like curry. It's just, you know, after a period of time, you know. So uh, I, I want you to pray for us, and uh, we'll be praying for you, that our families are protected while we're gone, church is good, all that, okay? Father, I pray that you will bless them and keep them, that you'll make your face shine down upon them, that you will be gracious to them, that you will turn your countenance their direction and give them peace today. Fill up our group ministry today, Lord, not because we're trying to reach goals and give away TVs, because we really want people to grow. And then, Lord, give us favor in this trip, much fruit for the kingdom, safety in our return. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.